Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you're about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. Make sure to subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you're enjoying the content. In case you haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr. I'm the Senior Director of Product Marketing here at Yield Street. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, a tech powerhouse designed to bring together leading-edge technology and wealth management. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Peter. Great to be here. Yeah, a lot to discuss. I mean, certainly, you know, the current market backdrop, I imagine, is um, creating a lot of challenges for folks. Um, You know, one, understanding without any biases how to operate and act within it, and then two, all the the behavioral biases that do come into play in the decision-making process. So, I think a lot to unpack that's really timely for what's going on in the markets. But perhaps to start, you can kind of kick it off with telling a little bit about yourself and also uh, Orion Solutions. Yeah, so uh, Orion is a, a most-in-one tech platform for financial advisors. We've got everything from uh, asset management to, to planning to compliance to CRM uh, as of a few weeks ago. So we are trying to be your your one-stop shop, really. Uh, in terms of my uh, in terms of my role there, I'm the chief behavioral officer. I'm in charge of training tools and technology. Uh, that incorporate the insights of behavioral finance into our offering. So everything from sort of the educational arm for advisors, teaching advisors through practice management how to integrate behavioral finance into their lives, all the way to, uh, you know, designing specific technologies that are architected in such a way to try and bring out the best uh, in investor behavior. So that's a great role, a multifaceted role, and, and one that I enjoy a great deal. And so you, you work quite a bit with, you know, financial advisors, you know, who, you know, probably have a bit of a unique seat in the market landscape. You know, they're, they're not exactly individual retail investors, but certainly they may not necessarily be large institutional investors either. So they kind of sit in between those. And, you know, for my seat, you know, they're a little bit more subject at times to, to potentially the influences of their clients, whereas institutional investors typically have very long horizons. When you're dealing with individuals, you're dealing with people's real money, their life savings, their nest eggs. You know, maybe you can walk them through a little bit about some of the challenges that are unique to financial advisors that might be a little bit different than, let's say, an institutional investor. I think in, in a very real sense, people are people. And you've, you've certainly seen institutions do things that are uh, every bit as dumb as, as any ind- single individual. Uh, when you look at the research on how financial advisors do with their clients versus how they do with their own money, something really instructive jumps out, which is, 
you know, the, the headline is that financial advisors are not great with their own money. You know, when, when sort of left to their own devices in the, in the absence of, of having an advisor themselves, financial advisors make many of the same mistakes that you and I do. But then you look at how financial advisors do with, with other people's money, and the answer is extraordinarily well. There's research out of Canada uh, to suggest that people who have a long-term relationship with an advisor have 2.73 times the wealth of their same income peers that are DIY investors. There's tons of research to suggest that folks who work with an advisor do on the on the order of 2 to 3% better per year, which is uh, an incredible level of outperformance when you compound it over an investment lifetime. And so, you know, uh, financial advisors are human. They, they do what we all do. And the, the world is full of, you know, dating coaches with disastrous love lives and money managers who make poor decisions with their own money. And, you know, I think it's, it's, just, it's just the human condition that we're better able to advise and we're better able to assist uh, when we have a level of distance and a level of objectivity. And so... You know, that's why I, I pay an advisor. You know, I've written whatever, three books on behavioral finance. I got a PhD in, you know, human behavior. I know as well as anyone what things I'm susceptible to. And yet I know that that knowledge doesn't make me materially less susceptible to them. So I'm a big advocate that every advisor should have her own advisor. Uh, and that's a, that's a, a drum I, I bang pretty loudly. And so to kind of, um, you know, jump, jump into that a little bit, there are obviously a lot of investing biases and behavioral biases that are known and studied, but you know, the one that you were kind of alluding to as much as anything else feels like an emotional connectivity to the money. Whereas, you know, when you're advising for someone else, there isn't that same attachment. One, would you say that's fair? And two, you know, beyond that as well, is that really kind of just risk aversion? What is that kind of emotional connection when you think about it in terms of a, of a behavioral bias? Yeah. So one, one of the, one of the things that I tried to do in my most recent book, The Behavioral Investor, was I took this universe of biases that you're talking about, and there's tons now. I mean, there's like well over 200. And it gets, it gets sort of ridiculous and it gets sort of unwieldy to, to you know, memorize a name and, and try and avoid 200-something biases. So what I did was I sort of distilled them down into what I call these meta-biases, I found these sort of meta biases that account for a lot of the damage that gets done and, and sort of subsume some of the smaller biases. And basically it breaks down to ego, emotion, attention, and conservatism. So ego is sort of overconfidence. Emotion is just what it sounds like. Attention is confusing things that are loud or uh, with things that are probable. And conservatism is status quo proneness, loss aversion, risk aversion. And honestly, I think every one of these things is is on display right now. You you know, you look at something like attention bias, you've got COVID, you've got a war in Ukraine, you've got inflation, you've got sort of all this headline risk that's very top of mind with people. Uh, you've got the emotional piece that that you alluded to. In the behavioral investor, one of my favorite studies that I cited in that book looked at the level of sort of emotional activation in the brain when people were presented with different stimuli. So it's stuff like sex, politics, religion, like, you know, all these things that kind of get us get us worked up. And the one with the most excitatory power was actually money. 
So we are super emotional when it, when it comes to our money more so than, than, you know, arguably anything else. And, you know, we've got conservatism wanting to manage our losses. All of these things are at play all the time. Uh, but yeah, certainly emotion is, is foremost among them. You know, I think ego and emotion are kind of one, two, and, and it's, uh, makes a strong case for having someone else hold the bag, if you will, and, and make those decisions. And it's kind of, you know, I, I think sometimes there's a bit of a misconception, right? The, the term bias makes everyone feel as though it's always negative, mm-hmm. but really a bias just means that you have a propensity more than anything else to kind of over-index or, you know, do something to a certain degree, but certainly for periods of time that ego might also work in your favor, right? It's just also at other times it might work against you. It's almost being aware of some of those biases so you can kind of, again, get that objectivity to come back into play. Yeah. You make, you make a wonderful point. You know, these things, all of these things exist for a reason. Like all of these things have an evolutionary reason and, and what makes investing so difficult or good investing so difficult is many of the biases, which as you appropriately stated are just sort of shortcuts. These are just sort of shortcuts. A lot of these shortcuts that serve us so well, other places in life, serve us poorly in markets. So emotion is a great shortcut. And and there are certain types of information for which our emotion is a really sound indicator of what we ought to do. Uh, if you go on a date with someone, or you meet someone, they kind of give you the creeps, or you have a, uh, you have a feeling that's off. You have a ton of experience with meeting people and making assessments of character. And so your gut is very often right, and you probably shouldn't hang out with that person again. Similarly, uh, ego. Ego has a, an enormous positive impact on us. It keeps us from being depressed. It leads us to take appropriate risks. It leads us to kind of stick our neck out there and, and sort of live the life we've dreamed of, even when the odds are against us. So, I mean, there's all kinds of things that that overconfidence does to make us happy and well-adjusted and, and appropriate risk takers. It's just the misapplication of those shortcuts that serve us well other places in life to markets, which is really where we get sideways. So, so what is it about markets that you think kind of bring out in many instances kind of the worst of these biases or at least these the negative repercussions of these biases? What is it? Is it, you know, the... The ability to see something in uh, you know nanosecond performance and change. Um, what do you think some of those drivers are that make markets a little bit more unique? One of the things is the emotional piece that we talked about. Like the stakes are just incredibly high, and I think especially in a world in you know the U.S. culture, in specific Western culture more broadly, where money is kind of shorthand for happiness or you know, a life well lived or success. I mean, money is sort of our shorthand for a hundred other positive things. And so it's very wrapped up in our concept of self and and our view of the good life. And so accordingly, we get emotional about it and make dumb decisions. And then part of it is it's just like bizarro world, right? For the, for the comic book fans, it's just sort of like the, the upside down, you know, where you look at something like action bias, our, our propensity to want to, to move or to act. If you want to get more fit, like action bias serves you well. Like you should run more and lift more weights. Like if you want to get smarter, action bias serves you well, read more books. But then you look at the market and you have that same action bias to try and do something in, in, a, in a place where you want to make something happen. 
And in every country where it's ever been studied, 19 different countries, the more you trade, the more active you are, the worse you do. So in some ways, the rules are just 180 degrees of where they are elsewhere. And you are very reasonably applying these rules from elsewhere in your life to markets. And the rules are just different. And I think what you're alluding to too is like, you know, there's, there's just a lot of transactions. Uh, there's a lot of costs and frictions around them. And plus, I think, you know, I've seen some different studies where it said if you just invest in the S&P 500 for at least five years on a rolling monthly basis, you were positive at least like 90 plus percent of the time. And the corollary to that was like, you know, the best odds at a Vegas, you know, in a, in a casino, right? I think are roughly, I believe it's blackjack at like 49%. So it's incredible to think that people would take, you know, some of those chances on a 50-50 probability, but just by staying invested throughout history, you've actually done pretty well for yourself. Absolutely. And then, so when you kind of um, think about, you know, how markets have evolved, right? And, you know, I think obviously things becoming more digital, you have more access, you know, you think back to the eighties, you had to pick up a phone call in order to buy or sell a stock. Um, Do you think the infusion of better technology and enabling folks at least to have more real-time information plus the ability to take more action. And I also kind of will take that step further and talk a little bit about, you know, the gamification of stocks as well, um, which plays into that as well. You know, how do you think that erosion or how do you think that is a, a impact of kind of the erosion of people's performance when trading for themselves in the market? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. And, you know, the reason this is such a great uh, question is, we tend to look at technology through a valueless lens. Like we tend to think about technology or or an app on our phone as just sort of being there, you know, because technology is so pervasive, it's so ubiquitous. We're just like, you know, an app is an app is an app. And yet every app, the way a question is structured, the way a design is structured, any of these things the architecture of the decisions that are presented to us have a material impact on on how we act. So the the upside of easy access to say a trading app or an investing app is that we're reaching new people, and the people that we're reaching are younger than they've been historically. They're more diverse than they've been historically, and that's all good stuff, right? We're reaching we're we're reaching people with lower uh, investment thresholds, lower, lower dollar thresholds, and we're reaching a younger uh, and a more diverse crowd, which is a, a great start. The, the bad news is, in many cases, we've, people, we've given people just enough technology to hurt themselves with, and we, we haven't been thoughtful about the way that that's been architected. A lot of the things that if you ask an investor, you know, what are you looking for in an, in an app or in a, you know, in, a, in a trading partner, you would say something like uh, easy access, real-time alerts, gamification, sort of uh, easy interface. All of these things... <laughs> sort of work against us behaviorally like all of these things that ostensibly we want and are the sort of the hallmark of of good design elsewhere in the tech world all of these things hurt us uh, from from a financial behavior standpoint so it's a tricky thing and it's going to take technology providers being thoughtful and client-centric and sometimes the incentives are such that they're not incented to be client-centric I just kind of, you know, this leads me to think a little bit, right? And of course, obviously a lot of these platforms get more revenue, you know, by, by transactions, right? So there's always a little bit of an incentive there, but do you think there's anything on the regulatory side that would help people get out of their own way or stop hurting themselves? And again, I think about like long-term capital gain stats, you know, being a benefit, but 
you have to hold for 12 months. Do you think extending that out, let's say to three years or so, as I think was a proposal some time ago, do you think that changes anything or at least helps people uh, potentially stay into their investments for longer? Oh, the average holding time of a stock is well south of, of the existing, you know, of the existing uh, long-term capital gain. So I'm not sure that does much. I, I will, I will say though, that I think that uh, regulators have to work to, to hold folks accountable. I think there is a lot of, I mean, I'll be candid. I think there's a lot of sort of malicious, poorly designed tech out there, or, or in, I guess it's it's well designed for a poor outcome. And I do think regulators have to hold technology companies' feet to the fire and make sure that they're that they're acting in client centric ways. And one of the most powerful ways that we can do that is is just in time education. So you think about something like long-term capital gains tax. You and I know about that, and we likely think about that when we're making investment decisions. But you know, uh, Joe's six-pack and from you know from Alabama, where I'm from, may not know about this, and has a family and a job and a hundred other concerns. And so when you know Joe goes to make a trade, he's not necessarily thinking about the impact of this. Well, you can have a pop-up, right? If you're, if you're trying to be client-centric, you could have a little educational blurb pop up right there and say, hey, Joe, see you want to make a sale. Here's the tax consequences of this versus if you wait three months. What do you think? And you're not preventing this person from doing anything. Like, we need freedom. We're, we're, you know, it's almost the 4th of July. We're all about freedom. We want to give people the freedom to do what they want to do. But we have to educate them in ways that are realistic and not just hope that everyone's going to be walking around with a head full of esoteric investment knowledge and applying it in a utility maximizing way at every hour of the night and day. Like we, can, we can do better about educating clients in real time about the impact of their choices. So, so kind of just to pull all this, you know, together in, in current times, you know, markets are, are down uh, depending on, you know, what indice or index or, or stock you even look at somewhere between roughly 20 to some, you know, high growth tech names being in the, you know, 67 to 8% drawdown. What do you think are some things that, you know, would serve people well to think about as they kind of try to navigate some of these situations and maybe as like a prelude to that also, what do you think kind of is like the mentality or decision making process right now that people are struggling with? Well, so I'll start with the second question first. You know, by by some measures, investor sentiment is the lowest it's ever been, like you know, of all time. And in some uh, in some respects, we're not seeing that pessimism line up with asset allocation because people are still heavily allocated to stocks, uh, even though they're sort of on paper pessimistic. So we'll see if those two um, conform more more closely or if they stay distant. But the thing that's unique about this time is that inflation impacts everyone. You know, <laughs> what did I, what stat did I read the other day? More more people in America own cats than own stocks. So we, you know, when the stock market is hurting, not at, not everyone in America is 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 feeling that. But when gas is five and six bucks, seven bucks in California, you know, everyone feels that. When groceries are expensive, everyone feels that. So I think there's a pervasive level of pessimism right now. And from a decision-making standpoint, there's, there's something called the affect heuristic, which I would sort of categorize under emotion, which just shows that, you know, your, your emotion or your sentiment colors your perception of the world. So for the last, you know, in, in 2020, well, second half of 2020 and, and 2021, everyone was in this sort of 
euphoric mindset and risk controls were, were totally left to the side as people speculated and some really dumb stuff. And so now everyone's in this sort of dour mood and everyone's seeing risk around every corner. So I just think it's uh, a time to revisit first principles, uh, to revisit the idea of diversification, uh, to understand that uh, owning a stock or an ETF is fractional ownership of a business or businesses, and that high quality you know, companies with moats and earnings and that are adding real value to real people's lives are going to be just fine. But, you know, with this widespread pessimism, people start to see risks and they start to be more discerning than they were over the last year or so. And I think a lot of the nonsense sort of falls away and there's been a lot of nonsense. So I think it's a, I think it's a time to just be a good old fashioned, fundamentally based, well-diversified investor. And I think you'll be fine in the medium term. Yes. It's one of those funny things that kind of happen is like, um, and I'll, I'll just use crypto as an example because it's, it's such a phenomenon, but you know, it's almost like you heard everyone else making money in crypto and you're like, Oh crap. These people just completely changed some of their, their lifestyles or some of their kind of like uh, their ability to do different things. It's like crap. Everyone else is doing it. I should probably get in. It's like when you get to that point, it's like you are likely to be a last mover um, here. And that's kind of like, again, maybe not a signal, but one of those things where it's like, you know, if you're not early, you know, you tend to be quite late. And I think that's always a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Um, so when you kind of like think about, uh, you know, now just kind of knowing, you know, where, where, where kind of markets are, you, you've, you've kind of alluded a little bit to being maybe not a contrarian, but at least having a little bit more of a, a skeptical view when everything else seems to be in this kind of more euphoric state. You know, again, you, you talked about kind of using these opportunities to right-size your portfolio, go back to the fundamentals of portfolio construction. Why don't you think people do that, knowing that I think everyone, it's like brushing your teeth, right? Everyone knows that you should do this, but they don't. What do you think the big driver is there? Well, you know, it's, it's recency bias. So one of the, you know, one of the things that is so true of us, okay, I'll rewind a bit. We have these brains that are sort of perpetually overworked, right? Our brains are like two to three percent of our body weight, but they do twenty to twenty-five percent of the caloric expenditure in any given day. So your brain is sort of always taxed. And one of the ways that you can uh, think less or use less energy, kind of kick your brain into energy saver mode, is by just assuming that what things are like now is kind of how they will always be. So like if I meet Peter today and he's nice and smart and, and affable and all these things, you know, if I meet you six months from now, I'm not going to go, gee, I like, I wonder if Peter is going to be a complete jerk. I'll just assume that, you know, Peter is who Peter is. And we do that with markets too. And so what we do in any given market is we assume that the current conditions will exist in perpetuity. And so when crypto is going up $10,000 a month, people are extrapolating this sort of indefinitely and going, okay, well, it's 50,000. Now it's going to be a hundred thousand by year end, but we do the same thing in reverse too. And the tricky thing is the truest words in investing are this too shall pass, right? Because if, if you take a, this too shall pass mindset, when everything's so euphoric, it sort of humbles you and you go, ah, you know, not so fast, you know, trees don't, don't grow to the, the clouds, but when everything's terrible, it actually gives you some heart and it, and it picks you up a little bit. So right now stuff looks pretty bleak, right? Like markets are down. The, the economy looks rough. We just got a GDP update re revision down today. And it's easy for people to say, 
you know, gas is always going to be eight bucks and everything's always going to be like this. And, you know, this too shall pass. Those words are true today uh, and they should give you some heart. And those true words were true last year and should have encouraged you to maybe not cash out your retirement fund for a, a monkey JPEG. Say it now retrospectively. However, uh, I yes. too consider the monkey JPEGs last year. <laughs> um, you know, th- this is really insightful. Maybe you could walk them through a little bit about how to, you know, learn more about some of your books and some of your work overall, and also kind of like, you know, where they can, where and maybe even how to start kind of learning more about some of the biases that they may not be aware of. If you want some good free resources, we're at orion.com slash practice hyphen management. We have a ton of free courses. We have free courses, CE courses on behavioral finance that you can come and take most, most led by me. My books are the laws of wealth and the behavioral investor. Uh, both I think are, are great primers on investor behavior. And then my, my podcast is called standard deviations. And, and every week we take an applied look at behavioral economics and, and how it impacts the lives of primarily financial professionals. So a couple of, couple of free resources. Well, the books will cost you, but the rest is free. No, those, those are great resources. And, uh, you know, it's always one of those really interesting topics too, where I don't think enough, you know, it certainly has risen quite a bit in academia. And I think obviously, uh, you know, traders and, and those really close to markets, pay a lot of attention or at least are more aware of some of their biases, but it's something that I think uh, a lot of folks would be very beneficial to learn more about, especially as it impacts their decision-making to make sure again, if nothing else, you're at least being as objective as could be reasonably be expected. Sure. But Daniel, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you, of course, to all of our listeners. Remember to visit yieldtree.com to learn more about our offerings. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss a show. Thank you all and see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.